Dr. Wilfred Riley is a political muckraker and data-driven contrarian par excellence. He is the Associate Professor of Political Science at Kentucky State University, where he focuses on empirical testing of political claims, which are often very influential, but rarely well supported by scientific data. Dr. Riley has recently turned his focus to the response to COVID-19, writing an article on April 28th for Spiked Online called There is No Empirical Evidence for These Lockdowns. Needless to say, his analysis lit a firestorm of debate on the internet, similar to whacking a hornet's nest with a broom handle. He recently updated this article on May 8th with fresh data and the title, These Lockdowns Still Aren't Working, also published in Spiked Online. Wilfred, it's truly a pleasure to meet you. I'm a huge fan of your work. Thank you. Pleasure to be here as well. I read your analysis on April 28th, published in Spiked, and I was really impressed. Can you please outline the thesis of the article as well as the core bit of your findings? Sure. What I was interested in was whether there was empirical hard evidence for the efficacy of these COVID-19 lockdowns, because you often saw um, what seemed to be almost a moral debate with one side saying, well, you're putting senior citizens at risk and the other side saying, well, you're closing my restaurant, my small business and a bit of an angry back and forth developing. And outside of a couple examples in New York, I didn't see much attempt to see, at least at that point, I mean, you're talking about mid-April, how states that did not lock down but instead were practicing a pretty stringent social distancing regime were doing as versus those states that did lock down in terms of number of COVID cases, number of COVID deaths. So that's essentially what the first piece was. And as you mentioned, it's called There's No Empirical Evidence for These Lockdowns. But I looked at the block of U.S. states, and you could define this as between seven and nine, depending on how you look at South Carolina, depending on how you look at Oklahoma, but that never locked down. And there were quite a few of these for what I guess you'd call constitutional reasons. I mean, South Dakota's governor has given some eloquent explanations of why she didn't. But um, quite a few fairly large states in that group. Uh, Utah, for example, is in that group. Arkansas fell in that group. Iowa fell in that group, although they did, for example, close internal service for bars and restaurants. Support to be honest about what happened state by state. I took that group of states that did not lock down, and essentially, in the first piece, I compare them to all the states that did lock down. So first, I look at whether there are more cases and deaths in the social distancing states than in the lockdown states. That's an extremely crude metric, but you have to understand that throughout this conversation, there have been pieces published like the Atlantic, uh, Georgia's experiment in human sacrifice, that have just openly argued you'd see what have been called death states in the non-lockdown states. So this is a crude first metric. And what I find is, no, there were actually fewer cases uh, and fewer deaths in the uh, non-lockdown social distancing states on average. The difference wasn't enormous, but it was in favor of the social distancing states. So next, I adjusted for population, because although, again, you're not talking about tiny places, you're talking about Utah or Arkansas or Oklahoma, but you are talking about states that are a bit smaller than New Jersey. You need to make that adjustment. So I did a standard adjustment, a pop one million and looked at whether there were more cases and deaths on average in the um, social distancing states and the lockdown states. And again, I found, no, the social distancing states once again outperformed the lockdown states. As I recall, um, at this point, mid-April, on average in the social distancing states, there were 12 deaths per million individuals in the state. And in the lockdown states, there were 54 deaths per million individuals in the state. And again, correlation doesn't equal causation. So you could argue that if you're looking at equivalent states, you may be more likely to lock down if you're getting harder hit in your one big city or whatever, obviously. But at very least, we kind of shattered the death states narrative. Um, The 
social distancing states were experiencing on a per capita basis less deaths than the lockdown states. In fact, that relationship was clearer at the per million level than it was originally. And finally, I did a regression analysis, and this is a standard linear model stata. But I mean, it included most of the independent variables that you've really heard about, I think, in this debate. So population, population density, minority population percentage, median age, so on down the line. Uh, obviously, the strategy used by a state, did you lock down or did you implement social distancing? And once again, I want to clarify, well done social distancing doesn't mean holding indoor parties only for grandmothers. <laughs> I mean, there's an entire strategy that goes into medical social distancing, giving six feet, uh, suggesting or requiring that people wash their hands, you know, managed entrance and egress from businesses. My own background is in the business world before academia masks, I don't really see a problem with as long as people understand what they're doing, the positives and the negatives there. So all of that goes into social distancing. But again, that would be the strategy A as versus strategy B of lockdown. That was one of the variables in the model, uh, simply binary term. And what I found was that population had a very significant effect, obviously, on the number of COVID cases and the number of COVID deaths at a state. Uh, that was statistically significant at P equals 0.05 in both cases. Simply put, the more people you have in a state, whatever your strategy is, when you have a very large, very concentrated population, you're going to have more problems with a plague, if you will, with an unexpected epidemic disease. That's unfortunate, but that's real. I mean, people have for thousands of years fled the city for their country home when this kind of thing has happened. There's a reason for that. Density approached significance. It would reach significance in later models. But those were the variables that had an influence of any kind, uh, again, in this regression run with multiple independent variables in the model, strategy had no effect at all. As I recall, P for strategy was 0 0.940. Yeah. So there was- Basically random. It was <laughs> roll a dice. Yeah. Yeah. A 94% chance that you're looking at nonsense. So it's just, <laughs> it, it, I didn't find anything. That's, that's the, without- over amplifying my results or without rambling on, there was very, very little evidence for the efficacy of locking down rather than implementing social distancing and basically trusting people to follow the rules. This produced such a follow-up, I mean, in terms of comments on the internet, um, in terms of pretty serious inquiries, uh, myself and uh, I don't think these gentlemen would mind me noting this, Peter Steinmetz, who's a pretty well-known physician, and Morgan Frank, who actually runs a hedge fund focused on healthcare. The three of us are going to be submitting some papers. We all know what we're doing. There's a chance to make an actual contribution to this debate at a fairly high level. So from internet comments to serious follow-ups to a bit of a backlash, all of that was produced. But the actual conclusion, I haven't necessarily seen, at least at the level of those states, really rebutted. Yeah. You can talk about r naught and other things that might vary between those states, but the death states idea, that there was no evidence for that. And Wilfred, that's what impressed me about this, because we had run a similar regression, which I'd sent you on April 4th, a few weeks earlier, and we had a very similar result to yours. We found that population was statistically significant, but really the, the correlation we found was between testing and then deaths. And th the reason why was that the testing was so underserved at that point, no one knew how prevalent the disease was. And the more testing you did, you suddenly realize, well, wait a minute, we're not at 3% mortality. We're actually down at 0.05% or 0.04%, much, much lower. Oh, yeah. Your statistics had a very strong, what we would call an R-square, residual error solved. You have a very robust model. These lockdowns should be, at, at the very least, getting questioned. <laughs> were you surprised that so many governments were insisting on lockdowns given your result? No, because I think that um, 
the quants in the general science and engineering and medical community got into this game a bit late. Mm -hmm. um, and to some extent, that's because you don't want to comment on another man or woman's area of specialty to some extent. I mean, I think that there were papers in the field of epidemiology that really, really, uh, to be blunt, panicked the world that came out very early on. I mean, I can think of a couple specific estimates. I mean, obviously, we all know Neil Ferguson. I mean, Ferguson said, if I recall him correctly, that the uh, IFR, not CFR, for COVID-19 would be around 1%, infection rate would be 80%, and uh, any mitigation short of lockdown or close wouldn't do much. Um, and his initial projection for COVID deaths was 2.2 million in the USA, 500,000 in Great Britain. That, yeah. that was the first thing government officials read. And I don't think most of them got past 2 million deaths, to be honest. There were other um, estimates in this vein. I mean, Fauci came out. I don't know why, but he estimated normally a very solid doctor, but he estimated 2% uh, fatality rate for COVID. Um, I don't know whether that was an IFR or CFR, but again, all the papers said was 2%. WHO, using what we now know to be very questionable Chinese data, said 3.4% was the, the general population fatality rate for COVID-19. And I think that when people looked at uh, Ferguson's 2.2 million and WHO's 3.4% death rate among everyone, they just shut down. Yeah, that was it. I mean, as we'd say playing basketball, it's a wrap. I mean, it was <laughs> that was the three pointer from the corner. There was no no one was waiting for some engineer or some political scientist to say, okay, there's some problems with these models. <laughs> I will say very quickly, um, Ferguson's model, Ferguson's actual modeling strategy at the level of what he inputted into, a, I'm assuming, state or R, even the computer coding code underlying that has come under some very serious attack recently. I'd encourage everyone to read that to the extent that people have been speculating online that if they turned that in as part of their dissertation, they would not have been graduating. It, there's a very serious question about, I'm not an expert in that field, not going to speculate in detail. There's a very serious question about what we've been following for a month or two. Even if that 1% estimate had been correct, was the model curve that Ferguson came up with accurate? Um, again, I don't think that was checked very early on. What I find ironic in that is if you remember, even before Neil Ferguson's model was published, generally one of the first big articles that had come out against the WHO position was a uh, John Ioannidis's paper in stat yeah. based on the extrapolation of data from the diamond princess cruise line. Now I remember yeah. looking at that thinking, okay, now this makes sense to me. And if you look at what the Swedes did and what Florida did and what Georgia did, generally one could say, okay, they sort of committed to that strategy as did the Dutch and as did initially the Brits. And then boom, the Imperial College model blew up everybody's percentages. Can you give us an overview on what Professor Ianita said? Because you also refer to that in your initial modeling. Yes, I can. And you're absolutely right that Britain initially was pursuing essentially a herd immunity strategy. And then the Imperial College bombshell landed. So what you saw with the transition to lockdowns in Britain, and I'd go so far as to say Northern Europe, was a direct result of Imperial College. When people ask, you know, jokingly on something like a golf course, you know, what do you guys do in those ivory towers? What do you guys do in those think tanks or in those biotech companies? Change the world. I mean, <laughs> these things have an enormous, enormous impact. When major policy papers like this come out, you very frequently see government positions shift overnight. And it is very important. And again, I don't know the exact quality of Ferguson's computer code. You almost feel sympathetic for someone at that level of publication caught up in the governmental spotlight. 
But it's very important that the work that produces these policy changes be good, be monitored, and be responded to by other intelligent individuals in society. At any rate, uh, John Ioannidis has kind of been the anti-Ferguson through a lot of this debate. What Ioannidis has said over and over is that we're making major world-changing decisions on the basis of bad, insufficient information. So one of the things uh, Dr. Ioannidis wanted to do very early on is look at actual to the extent you could find them, randomized representative environments where COVID-19 had unfortunately been allowed to operate, where the virus had run loose, where there had been an outbreak of COVID. And one of those was the Diamond Princess Cruise Liner, which was, um, I, I don't understand the flagging of cruise ship companies, but an American <laughs> ship, essentially. Where American ship the, in quotes, I think, probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, chartered in Liberia or whatever the hell they do for tax reasons. Exactly. That's why it's so hard to get them to dock when there's a disease outbreak, by the way. That's not just cruelty. It's sort of like, well, you said you weren't from here for many years, good buddy. It's an insurance liability nightmare. <laughs> but at any rate, Absolutely. but um, essentially, the Diamond Princess Cruise Liner saw an outbreak of COVID-19. Um, if you want to debate potentially different strains of the disease, that wouldn't have been a case. This was very early on. This was when the epidemic began. And this went on on the ship for weeks. I think that pretty much everyone that could have been stricken by the bug was. And what you saw was, first of all, the final infection rate for the disease, as I recall, was 17.9%, which is very typical for severe flus. It wasn't 85% or anything like that. That's one thing uh, Ioannidis took note of. And secondarily, the fatality rate for COVID was about 1%, which seems somewhat on par with estimates we've seen. But one of the things that he did was make an adjustment for the age of the passengers on the cruise ship. There's a very old hackneyed joke that cruise ship passengers tend to be newlyweds or nearly deads. <laughs> um, and in this case, you had more perhaps in the second category. The average age on the ship, as I recall, was something like 72. So he plotted the deaths on the Diamond Princess by age category against the actual age curve of the U.S. population. And he noticed as soon as he ran his figures that that would have equated to a 0.125% death rate against the U.S. population overall. So what he said was that he saw an 18% infection rate and he saw a perhaps 0.15% fatality rate for COVID-19 in the most representative environment that he could find. And he started looking for more information of that kind. And his quote is, that's when I saw the denominator problem. Right. And this, to me, is one of the big issues with the initial estimates for COVID-19 fatality rate. Most of these came from the CFRs for the tested population of individuals to first go in to take the first COVID tests and then be monitored as essentially live or die cases. The problem with this was that it was very, very difficult for a long time to take a test for COVID-19. Um, I was finally able to take a COVID-19 antibody test through Quest Diagnostics about a week ago. Interesting. Are you clear? Did you Have you had it? Don't know yet, actually. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's an interesting situation. My fiance is clear. Okay. They told her within two days. So I strongly suspect I might have had COVID-19 at some point. There actually was a period where, on the advice of a doctor, I self-quarantined for a bit. Sure. But this gets, this gets into the denominator problem um, issue, actually, at a fairly personal level. For quite a while in the United States, it was extremely difficult to take a test for COVID-19. Um, at least in Kentucky, the rule was that you had to be sick and symptomatic, 
you had to have actually come into contact with a person that had COVID-19. And this is someone that would be named who apparently they would then verify. And obviously you had to go through this sort of scary process of contacting a hospital to request the test for this frightening new disease. You had to be that worried about what was going on with your body. So what we actually saw was that the original testing pool for COVID-19 was extremely unrepresentative. It was made up primarily of sick and symptomatic, you'd assume locally influential, bluntly, seniors. And that's where the death rates that we've been seeing across countries for COVID come from. In the USA today, the, if you look at Worldometer's coronavirus or an information source like that, the death rate for COVID-19 is still around 5%. But that reflects the pool of people, the number of deaths against the number of people that have taken the official test for COVID-19, obviously. Correct. What Dr. Ioannidis pointed out is that there must be, we don't know exactly what it is, but there must be a much larger pool of people that have contracted COVID that have been told to stay home by their doctors or whatnot. Um, and the actual IFR for the disease comes from taking that block of individuals against the number of deaths. So um, what Stanford originally did was study the Vo region of Italy, if I have that correct, and they found that there were antibodies for COVID-19 in about 3.3% of the population. Uh, based on the number of deaths in Italy at that time, Dr. Ioannidis and I think Dr. Bhattacharya on this one estimated um, an, actual, an IFR for COVID-19 of 0.12%, 0 0.06 to 0.12%. Um, that obviously is not going to be what we end up with in the final run. It's not going to be the last piece of data we see. But his point throughout this entire process has been we're making very, very major decisions on the basis of very, very limited data. If we actually look at the results of major serological tests down the road, we're not going to see an IFR that's anything like 3%, anything like 2%, probably anything like 1%. So shutting down society on the basis of that upper end 3% estimate is asinine. And I think that that comment has survived much better, has stood the test of time much better than Dr. Ferguson's. I, I agree completely. And if you look at the work that Stanford did in Santa Clara County, 2% of the population had had exposure. You had the test in Germany that found that actually 15% of the population in the town of North Rhine-Westphalia had actually already had exposure. Again, putting the numbers down. It seems like as we're getting more data, quants early on the curve are looking more and more correct. And this is sort of your wheelhouse now, Wilfred. This is where you live. You love to call sacred cows and use mathematical tests and say, is there logic here? Why do you think we've gone from numerical logic to religious orthodoxy related to the way we're treating the lockdowns and how we're handling the disease? That's a very interesting question. I, I will say I was that's a good question. I was more prepared for uh, some of the mathematical uh, <laughs> ones, honestly. <laughs> I think that we're in a period of orthodoxy in our society, actually. I'm not entirely sure why this is, but what we've very definitely seen is the Overton window on the left and to some extent the hard right in American discourse shrink dramatically. Is it a window anymore? Is it sort of a wing window? or Kind of the Overton arrow slit. <laughs> I mean, there's not a, not a whole lot there. But I mean, issues that I don't consider incredibly controversial, are there small intellectual or athletic differences between the races? And by that, I don't mean controversial in the sense that you couldn't argue. Of course, there's a passionate argument, but I don't necessarily think it matters given what 
the end result might be and what its size is. Selective immigration could be a way to respond to that, for example, depending on what we found the results to be. That's something that almost can't be discussed. Differences between men and women. We fired a president of Harvard because he speculated that we, I mean, I wasn't on the board at the time, but I mean, (laughs) he speculated that men might be better at quantitative rapid sequence decision making and women might be better speech makers and theoretical thinkers. I don't think this would strike most people in a marriage as all that controversial. But I mean, again, he was he was shown the door very rapidly. I'm not saying that's absolutely true. But again, seems like something that could be discussed. Many, many topics, uh, sexuality, race, immigration. Uh, One of the most controversial things I said in my most recent book, Taboo, I was absolutely shocked by this, turned out to be my proposal that we admit only, what was it, sane, non-criminal, mostly healthy and able-bodied people that could pass an IQ test or otherwise get a job. I thought that was just a throwaway sequence. Um, It was immediately described as a cruel policy that would block mentally ill immigrants from the United States, or for example, individuals with AIDS. Uh, I've been asked about it in probably half the interviews I've done. Would you bar mentally ill immigrants with HIV, for example? (laughs) Probably. At any rate, uh, we're in a period where questioning a wide variety of norms on both the left and on the extreme right seems to be something that is punished in social discourse, almost as it would be in that Victorian period. And you're right that lockdown skepticism seems to have become one of these things. I, if I had to speculate, I would say that that's because of the political association of lockdowns with the mainstream center left. Yeah. So, for example, I mean, the governor that we associate with lockdown policy is probably Cuomo. If you took a standard anonymized poll of the citizenry, I mean, the person you associate with the skeptical position might be Trump. Or it might be a brash Republican governor like DeSantis. I mean, if you looked at who would be seen as a lockdown skeptic, it might be a face-painted, working middle-class protester with a gun or a protest sign. So I think that this this kind of politicization, Mm -hmm. I'm going to do a rambling sideline here. I have an issue with the politicization of issues that don't have a damn thing to do with politics in the first place, like hunting or the environment. (laughs) I mean, I lean at least center-right, but I mean, I think you should pick up your trash and not chop down trees for no reason. And obviously, green cars are a good thing. You know, development of green tech is a good thing. This seems like something that the business community should be endorsing. Of course, if solar and nuclear and so on are competitive with fossil fuels, that should be a sector of the market people should be investing in. The idea that this has become politicized is completely asinine. But I think the two sides here see each other as on the one hand, you know, hairy-legged hippies, you know, (laughs) burning oil derricks. And on the other hand, as you know, big hatted Texans slaughtering baby seals for fun. And whether that has anything to do with what's really just boardroom politics around how to heat cities, uh, I don't know. But this is definitely one of these inherently apolitical issues that's become politicized. And I think that because the mainstream U.S. center left controls the media, there is a great deal of skepticism about anyone who criticizes lockdown policy. Where you're based in Kentucky, you may not see it, but where I'm here in Brussels, I see it a lot. The UK has done okay, done not great, not poor, sort of middle end of the pack, probably. But they are getting eviscerated in the media as to how they're handling the crisis. It would appear that a lot of this is retribution or at least payback for the Brexit vote. Mm -hmm. It would appear that this has a lot to do not necessarily with 
what's happened with the actual results on the ground related to COVID-19 or the strategy to improve lives, but it's really political payback. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's some elephants in the room in this COVID debate that are really being obscured by these asinine political fights. Um, The biggest elephant in the room is, once again, that the social distancing states and countries don't seem to be doing any worse, at least not substantially worse than the locked down states and countries. This is my opinion, but there seems to be a conscious desire on the part of a lot of the European media to see Sweden fail. Mm-hmm. Over and over and over again, you see these stories like, when will the breaking point come? Or you'll see these comparisons only of Sweden to Norway and Denmark without noting that those countries have less than half the population of Sweden, pointing out that there are three to four times as many deaths in Sweden, perhaps a bit more now. I mean, and no one ever makes the obvious counterpoint that in practical terms, we're talking about, is, is it up to 4,000 death fatalities in Sweden today? Could be, yeah. I think it is, yes. But I mean, you're talking about 4,000 deaths as versus, say, 1,500 in a smaller population country after two to three months of this disease crisis with a largely intact economy. That does not appear to me, although I mourn every loss, to be an apocalyptic disaster. Yes. I mean, there's an element of the absurd to this. Whether or not it's outperforming the under Scandinavian countries, Sweden is doing better, generally speaking, than the UK. I mean, it's doing better than Belgium, Spain, Italy. The first assumption the British media seems to be making is that a lockdown strategy rather than a well-done social distancing strategy is having a dramatic effect. And I think that's currently being debated in the literature. I also think it's fairly unfair to blame politicians of one party or the other for picking one strategy or the other. This is, as the media endlessly tells us, the novel coronavirus. So I don't think anyone knew what we were getting into when this started. In fact, actually, if you're coming from a right or center-right perspective in the USA, I mean, the proposal of the Trump administration to ban travel from China, for example, would have been probably the most effective way to respond to coronavirus. The argument of the entire U.S. left was that that was extraordinarily racist. Until mid-March, you had Joe Biden arguing, no, obviously, we don't need to close the border. So there's plenty of blame to go around here. It's absurd for the people that advocated keeping the border open and keeping international air travel running to say, well, the president made this one mistake in delaying lockdown for a week. I mean, this is perhaps an issue that people shouldn't be flinging political darts about, but instead should be trying to solve. But if you want to throw darts, there are plenty to go around. Sure. He was also heavily criticized from the Europeans for doing so as well at the end of January, even though of course. everything broke loose here in February. And Belgium, of course, as we know, is top of the league table as far as deaths. 60% of the deaths are in nursing homes. Three weeks ago, the Flemish health minister was saying, yes, but, uh, you know, half of our deaths are in nursing homes, but we're not testing in nursing homes. What's the strategy here? Well, when I mentioned elephants in the room, I think that's another one. I would say that there are three things about COVID-19 that are generally not discussed in the media, that in the intelligent general scientific and general population communities we should be discussing. One is that COVID-19 is dramatically, dramatically, dramatically more dangerous for the elderly at the level of orders of magnitude. um, I mean, in Italy, from the research I've done, the average victim was 81. Seems to be the same in the USA. We're talking 81 or 82. Uh, Even the New York Times just came out and said that 33% of all COVID-19 victims in the USA also come out of the nursing home community. Uh, Other people, uh, free op, the think tank, they've gone through that and said, no, it's closer to 40% or more. You're talking almost half. Um, As far as I can tell, 0.05% of the U.S. population is currently nursing home back. So if 45% of the deaths come from the nursing home community 
And the average for all of them is age 81 and a half. I mean, we're seeing a very specific demographically targeted virus, and that's almost never mentioned. Correct. I mean, we see these pictures of individuals going to the beach and so on for spring break or the bars opening in Wisconsin. What's not mentioned is, frankly, almost none of those people are going to die if they get COVID-19. Uh, as far as I've been able to tell, for a healthy individual under 50, you're talking about a one in a thousand or less chance of death if you contract COVID. If you actually break out the CDC's charts by age group, I mean, you're 59 people under 25 have died of COVID-19. Yeah. It might be a few more because 59, I believe, was 14 through 25. And you also have two, for example, between one and four and four between you know, four and 10 and so forth. In contrast, 20,000-odd over the age of 85 have died. So that, that's point one. Yeah. The huge majority of the people that are dying are extremely elderly. Perhaps 10% of all deaths have been under 60. So there's a very specific thing we can do, whether that's quarantining seniors, if you want to use that harsh term, or again, banning all non-medical nursing home visits that would stop a great deal of this. We're not seeing the Grim Reaper Sith go through the general population at all, again, 59 under 25. That's not high school age. I think point two would be what you pointed out. And you broke down some of the serological studies, including one of which I haven't yet read. But new serial work is showing that the actual IFR for COVID-19 is probably on the order of 0.2 to 0.3%. I mean, I'd throw a couple in there. Miami and the States, we found that 7% of the population already had COVID antibodies, 0.15% IFR. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned Germany, Central Germany. I mean, that was about 0.3% IFR. We can't forget Denmark. They did all of the blood donors in the country. Yeah. I mean, that to me is the gold standard. I don't see how anyone could rebut that. 0.21% uh, overall IFR, 0.08% under uh, 70, I believe. It wasn't under 80. Don't want, it, don't want it all stretch. But I mean, that this is what we're seeing. So point one, we're seeing this concentrated very, very heavily among the extremely elderly, the nursing homebound elderly. Point two, even with that group as unfortunately the focus, we're seeing IFRs of 0.2, 0.3. What would that be among healthy young adults? And again, we're also seeing social distancing working about as well as working compar comparably with lockdowns. And that's probably because of this. The simple reality is if you take a bunch of healthy young people and you use any reasonable flu protocols in a bar, you're probably not going to see a lot of deaths. The point is by social distancing, we get to save three or 4% of GDP per month, as opposed to throwing it on the bonfire and burning up our national wealth, which is what's going on now. 3% of GDP per month in Italy is 50 billion euros a month, 1.7 billion euros a day. I mean, that's an enormous amount of overhead to carry on this, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I think it's a bit more than that in the USA because we're a federal uh, nation and so dispersed. I mean, as I understand, our I'll look this up immediately after the interview, but I think our GDP for the quarter fell 15%, 14.7%. Yeah. Now we have a $20 trillion GDP. So even if you're just doing a $5 trillion quarterly breakdown, I mean, that's well over a trillion bucks. And that doesn't account for the fact, one, this is going to go two quarters at least. Two, we also have a $2.4 billion bailout package that we just passed. So, I mean, you're talking about, say, a $5 trillion bill, roughly, as the cost of our lockdowns so far. Human life is surely, in some theoretical sense, priceless. I mean, I've had friends and acquaintances who work in the actuarial profession. For a very long time, if we're discussing this as serious professional adults, the valuation of 
a human being to some extent. This is what I'm valued as by my insurance company. It's pretty typical for an upper middle class male. Doesn't offend me anymore. Um, <laughs> is about $10 million, which is a standard above median salary multiplied by 100 years times two to account for your non-physical qualities. I think that that is a reasonable estimation. If we are in the context of COVID valuing each life potentially saved by lockdown policy at eight or nine times that amount, I do think we owe the small business community or the scientific community an explanation of why. What is the decision that justifies this? And it, well, once you explain that, why isn't the speed limit 12 miles an hour? <laughs> we, we seem to be reacting to this in a way that we have never reacted to a similar threat. The 5758 flu, uh, even the great influenza of 1819, although perhaps then we should have, uh, certainly the threats posed by SARS and similar diseases, or for that matter, opiates, which knock off 100,000 people quietly every year, not at all intending to be glib. So the question here is, why? What prompted this? And is this the most logical path of behavior once we're talking about those three elephants in the room? You updated your article with fresh data. Why did you do that? And what changes did you make, if any? Well, I did it to, Well, I did it for two reasons. One, I thought I needed to, based on some methodolog methodological critiques. And two, they asked me to. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, it really, okay. there wasn't a complex process of analysis. I got a couple of methods points I thought were legitimate. And they asked me if I'd write another article. And I said, sure. You know, I'm working on a you know more detailed, quote unquote, professional piece. But I enjoyed our partnership and had no problem with it. Essentially, in the second article, the first thing I did was update the data to reflect a time frame, which was, I believe, three week, two to three weeks forward. Because one of the comments that I'd heard is, well, after two weeks of lockdowns or three weeks of lockdowns, you won't be able to make this arrogant claim. <laughs> so I, I, again, then compared cases, deaths, cases per million and DPM, deaths per million, multiple weeks. By this point, in most states, we were probably four to five weeks into the lockdowns. Um, and again, I found the exact same thing. You can talk about R not, you can talk about RTRD, you know, at a, on a rotating daily basis and win some phases of that argument. I, there are some weaknesses of what I said. Yeah. But if, if you're just talking about the number of people that died and the number of people that kept dying after you implemented lockdowns, there's really no evidence that the large social distancing states were doing any worse. That was part one. And then I did some things that had been suggested. I used current active cases um, as a DV rather than uh, overall cases. Then I threw out cases totally, um, looked at a couple death metrics. Then I did a more, well, I suppose it was the same death metric with more things in the model, essentially. I, a number of variables have been proposed. You mentioned testing obviously needs to be included. I used a testing metric. Um, I used a date of onset metric. Mm -hmm. In fact, I the one I used in the article was date from first death rather than from first case. But there are a couple of ways to do that. There should still be two in my data set. I mean, one is uh, an alternative is date from X number of cases. But I, I threw date of onset in there. I even had a temperature variable. Yeah. Um, because I think one of the things that's not that hasn't really been discussed in this conversation is that there is a flu season for a reason. That in general, during hot periods of temperature, diseases like cold coronavirus caused colds and flus have much less of an effect. Sure. So I wanted to see if that was true in this case. And what I found redoing the regression model with these new variables in is that all of them had an effect, at least situationally. Uh, date of onset regressed singly against the dependent variable uh, certainly did. It didn't quite reach significance in the full model. 
temperature did. Um, I found that fascinating in the probably the best version of the model that I ran and four or five different regressions are described in this paper. Uh, temperature was statistically significant as a predictor of at least deaths, as I recall, which is the obviously the more reliable of the two dependent variables. Didn't reach significance in all the models, but I would recommend people look at that and include that in statistical analyses. What is the climate as we're looking at rising or declining rates of COVID-19 cases? Just looking at worldometers, I can't help but notice that COVID-19 cases and deaths are on a steady decline for the past week or so. And I also can't help noticing it's moving towards summer. And uh, finally, testing, as you pointed out, was extremely significant. I mean, that needed to be in there. That's one of the reasons I agreed to rewrite. In the final model that I ran, uh, kind of cutting this short, the only significant variables, in fact, were population and testing. <laughs> I mean, that, that was it. Density was right there. As I recall, temperature was right there. So if, if more data, if you went county by county, you'd probably see population, density, testing, and temperature all significant. But I can't say that right now. It was population and temperature. Yeah. That was it. Again, so at the conclusion of all of this, which is now five or six pages of statistical analysis, there was still no effect for lockdown versus shutdown strategy <laughs> yeah, or lockdown versus social distancing strategy. And one thing that I do say in here, one of the questions I got was, OK, you're looking at these sort of linear or maybe log linear dependent variables, you know, number of deaths. Yeah. Why don't you look at a rotating R naught or RT metric, like the increase in deaths week by week? And I actually take that on and I discuss kind of why I don't. And I point out that outside of New York, I mean, in many of these states, that's almost meaningless. Um, and a lot of the work that is focusing on this needs to include the real numbers as a baseline. So one criticism of my paper was that I ignore the fact that R naught had jumped in Wyoming, or RT, I guess would be the more technically accurate term, had jumped in Wyoming by something like 400% between two weeks. It does this disprove your thesis. I actually unpacked their data on covidtracking.com. It turned out that was a jump from two people to seven. <laughs> exactly. You had to round up, you know, to two people to eight. You know, but it was this outside of New York, there just weren't that many COVID-19 cases and deaths in most states. So... I did that explanation of why I chose the DVs that I did. I did the regressions. And then that, that ended the second piece. But yes, I did an update. And frankly, it found the same thing. I've got a question for you here. You're an academic. You teach. True. You carry some very, what one would think would be very politically incorrect opinions, one would say. True. Jonathan Haidt, the professor at New York University Stern School of Business, runs the Heterodox Academy. And he seems to say that professors such as yourself who question orthodoxy or hunted to near extinction or burned at a stake. Uh, how do you survive in academia? I have the greatest respect for Dr. Haidt, but I do think that claims like that tend to be a little bit exaggerated because they're made almost entirely in the context of American upper middle class life and the other irritations you might face in that role. I was born on the south side of Chicago, uh, grew up on the north side of that city pre-gentrification during the 1980s, and lived in the hood for a bunch more years, completing high school and so on. I was a varsity athlete there, traveled in the developing world for a little bit after high school, and ran a business for a bit, blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, in terms of how irritating these things are compared to the actual stresses of life, uh, I, don't, I don't think very much. In day-to-day -day life off of Twitter and Facebook, I don't encounter too much criticism for having mildly heterodox academic positions. Uh, really whatsoever. 
Um, in general, I think I'm fairly popular at my university. I'm actually our faculty ombudsman. Uh, there obviously are people at a large, highly rated uh, HBCU that are pretty woke, quote unquote. And I'm sure they disapprove of some of the things I've said. But it's also worth noting that sort of Payne's self-flagellating Marxism tends to be, no offense, a white thing. <laughs> um, at a... At an institution where the entire leadership team is well-off black guys, you don't necessarily have to feel that much guilt. <laughs> so I think that my response very often, if someone asked me about you know participation in center-right politics or something, would be, well, I think that is a pro-black position. I think that the less time African-Americans, or for that matter, the working-class Southern whites that attend school here, spend chasing ghosts like post-colonial anti-feminism <laughs> and instead, you know, bone up their math exam scores and get ready for law school, the better they're going to do in life. And I think that the audience is actually fairly receptive to that because it happens to be true. So, you know, some hostile glances from time to time, uh, not, not really much more than that that I can think of. We seem to be pretty politics free right now, which is a blessed state for academia. But in college, in my experience, that tends to be based more around money or around which departments are retained or obtain new faculty lines than it is about something like race, per se. So not a, not a huge issue, really. It is, it is probably pretty useful that I have tenure, though. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that, that bluntly, you know, if you are someone that has made even one or two enemies and you're up for panel review and you have, you know, a solid number of publications, but not two or three well-known books out yet. It's often at that stage, I think, that most colleges would just get rid of you. Yeah. So for the junior faculty man, I would advise you to you know, <laughs> get, get the journal pieces out there first before your heterodox opinions for Quillette or The Spectator or Jacobin on the left. That That is a useful piece of advice. Final question for you, Dr. Riley. What recommendations would you make to a country that's still considering locking down? That's an interesting one, because I will say, in, one of the reasons that I'm writing with a doctor and a healthcare executive is that I hesitated as a poli-sci guy to make medical policy recommendations. So, but I, I will answer the question. I said I'd answer all of them. This is, so this is in my personal capacity rather than speaking as the author of this paper. My suggestion, if I were talking to a local mayor who was a buddy of mine, would be open up. Uh, don't do so idiotically. But at this point, we're fairly aware of how to socially distance effectively. I think, in fact, if lockdowns had any utile purpose whatsoever, it was showing large populations how to do this. When COVID-19 first hit the scene, I think the reaction from a lot of people, especially right-leaning men, was this is a damn joke. And I do think we now know that's not the case if you want to protect your grandmother or your grandfather. I recall when the NBA shut down play. I was on social media at the time and people were saying things like, I'm going to burn my season tickets. You won't get me back as a fan. You guys are cowards. And I think we now do know that 50,000 seat arenas full of well-heeled older fans wouldn't have been a good idea. Yeah. So, so that is the one thing that the initial two, three weeks of lockdowns, as you saw the death toll mount did show people is, okay, you need to respond to this like you would have to the 57 flu, at least. Um, and people began experimenting with techniques of socially distancing. But I think now, if you go to a Kroger, you can see a dozen of those in operation. I mean, you see many people wearing light but effective 
polymer mesh breathing masks. I mean, you see entrance and egress marked using separate arrows. You see people keeping five, six feet apart. You see sanitizer stations. Many people have a little bottle of hand sanitizer. And none of this is extraordinarily inconvenient, in my opinion. It's annoying, of course, but it's quite doable. I don't really see it as having all of your freedom snatched away in the way that some people seem to. And there's a lot of things even simpler than that, like the spit shields in front of retail employees. That's something that, quite frankly, takes thinking back to college jobs and construction, five minutes to put up. And that probably eliminates the huge majority of risk to customer and to employee. And again, remember, it's the quote unquote essential employees that interact with 5,000 people a day. It's not necessarily you putting them at risk. So all of that stuff would be fairly easy to implement in most locations in three or four days. My recommendation would be that that be implemented and that most of society go back to normal functioning. And this again gets into the, um, the esteemable Thomas Sowell once said, in government and business, there aren't really any solutions. There are trade-offs. And he gives this example of the attempt by typical government bureaucrats to solve a problem. And it's a, it's a terrible example. It was that a plane near accident, I believe 84, where a baby was ripped from her mother's arms and thrown across a plane and killed. And I assume a hideous scene. And in response to that, airlines enacted all kinds of safety measures. You had to buy separate seats for children over X age and small babies had to be strapped in as well. And you had to buy tickets for kids and so on. And Seoul makes the point that this is the first infant ever to die in an airline accident where the plane didn't actually crash. And the total cost of these safety measures was about $16 billion, I believe is the figure he gave. <laughs> so we're talking about $16 billion spent for every life saved. And I think that that is not atypical for these kind of governmental safety measures. So when you look at some of the COVID stuff, like a total lockdown to stop, for example, let's give a rough estimate of 200,000, 300,000 deaths during the course of a year, and it's going to have a large number of trade-off effects. I mean, there was a study recently released from one of the large East Coast universities that predicted 75,000 suicides this year if we choose to take that route. Um, and in terms of years of life lost, actually, there would be far more under that scenario where healthy young business owners were killing themselves then there would be under the scenario where, you know, X number of people average age 82 were protected from COVID-19. So I guess what I'm saying here is if you have two roughly equal options in terms of life lost, one of which also shuts down the entire economy and makes tens of millions of people miserable for months, I would go with the option that doesn't. Because at some point, someone does have to make these kind of adult practical decisions. That's my recommendation purely as a private citizen, but it is my recommendation. Wilfred, Dr. Riley, thank you very much for your time. Well, thanks for having me on.